listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Belaboured Episode 153, What to Listen to When You're Waiting for Janice to Drop. The Supreme Court continues to torture us with waiting, so in the meantime, we bring you stories from around the country, who is striking now, and much more. In 1997, the Teamsters at United Parcel Services, better known to most everyone as UPS, went on strike in the middle of an era where major strikes were all but unheard of. You know, sort of like the U.S. before this year. They made history then, and they're poised now in 2018 to maybe do it again. Over 90% of Teamsters at UPS and UPS Freight, according to the union, have voted to strike if they do not have an acceptable contract by July 31st. To talk about this, I reached out to Joe Allen, who wrote about the strike vote in history at In These Times and is a former UPS worker himself, as well as the author of The Package King, a rank-and-file history of United Parcel Service. So uh, things are getting a little interesting at, at uh, UPS right now. Tell us what's going on. Well, uh, you know, people probably have heard that last week uh, the results of a national strike vote among uh, UPS Teamsters uh, showed a 90% yes vote to authorize a strike if the National Negotiating uh, Committee of the Teamsters deemed the company's last, best, and final offer, to use a, an old and familiar phrase, is not acceptable uh, to membership. Um, it was something of a, not really a surprise for people who, you know, follow UPS or the Teamsters, but it certainly caught the business press off guard who has sort of fallen out of the habit of, uh, you know, paying attention to the of strikes and the potential of strikes. And of course, it sort of fell a little bit a year later, but, you know, it was 21 years after, you know, the historic 1997 strike, which right, certainly, exactly. uh, sh- you know, kind of shocked the, uh, the business establishment in this country. In many ways, it, it, it threw them into a frenzy. And at least for a short period of time, it, it uh, it raised the question of the whole direction of the uh, of the American labor movement. Uh, okay. That didn't quite work out at this time, but you know, uh, this time around, uh, the issues are both similar and at the same time more dire. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those issues because I mean, there's been a lot written about the speed up at you know at UPS and other places, surveillance of workers, things like that. So tell us about what are the the issues that they're um, struggling over in this bargaining session. Well, there's, 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 a, there's a lot, and I yeah. think, uh, you know, the thing to start with is, you know, for people who aren't aware, you know, UPS is the largest private sector unionized employer in the country now, um, you know, employing, uh, at least according to the Wall Street Journal two weeks ago, 280,000 Teamsters. Uh, yeah. That may surprise people. There's also other workers who are not in the Teamsters and uh, who are also unionized. You know, a lot of the mechanics are represented by the machinists, and there are some clerical mm-hmm. workers represented by other unions, but it's uh, overwhelmingly the Teamsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it has 440,000, you know, workers worldwide, which is almost the same size as the U.S. Army. So, yeah. you know, and UPS is, a, you know, obviously a major, uh, you know, uh, factor in the U.S. economy. Every every day it moves about 6% of the U.S. GDP and about 2% of the world's. So it's very important on that level. It's also very important as a major employer. Uh particularly in the big metropolitan hubs, you know, around the country. It employs a, a large and revolving door of part-timers, but it also employs, right. you know, 60,000 package car drivers and 
and about 20,000 feeder drivers who are, you know, still some of the best paid uh, unionized uh, workers in the country, and those jobs are becoming smaller and smaller. One of the biggest issues this year, two of the biggest issues this year, which in yeah. some sense have always been perennial issues, but they're 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 in a more more important this year, if that's a, if that's a better way to put it, is one obviously the poverty wages of of part timers. Mm-hmm. You know, for almost 30 years, Sarah, part timers, you know, started uh, at eight or nine dollars an hour, um, and it's sort of hard to imagine that any wages remain exactly the same for decade upon decade, what they did at UPS. They yeah. crept up a little bit uh, in the last few contracts, so around $11 an hour. But considering the, the wealth of the company, UPS made $5 billion in profits last year and, and how hard, you know, part-timers work inside the hubs, you know, loading and unloading trucks and sorting packages. You know, people deserve a lot more. Currently, yeah. the Teamsters have a $15 an hour starting wage proposal on the, on the table. Hopefully, they'll stick with that. I think people need to make more than that, but nonetheless, uh, that's yeah. a good move. The other big issue is really the attack on full-time package car driving jobs. Uh, the company for years and years uh, yeah. has wanted to change the composition of their driving workforce uh, mm-hmm. uh, to make it more part-time, more contingent, lower pay. Uh, in some sense, it punched around the edges on this for many decades now by creating part-time drivers here and there. But there's a proposal out there to create uh, hybrid drivers, who people who would work part-time yeah. inside the hub and then part-time driving uh, package cars uh-huh. over the weekends with no overtime pay, and that uh, these would be done at a considerably lower rate of pay. Unfortunately, that proposal actually came from the Teamster side of the negotiating mm-hmm. committee. The reasons for that are many, but uh, doing the bidding of the company is is never a good one for the union. So I think when you look at that stuff, those are probably the two biggest issues. The other issues that are driving, I think, the yes vote for a a strike is that people are not happy with the concessions that were made during the last contract round around health care. There's great concern about the health of Teamster pension funds across Mm -hmm. the country. Uh, the Central States Pension Fund, for example, which had been, you know, the premier pension fund in the union movement for decades, it was also the mafia piggy bank for decades. You know, mm-hmm. it was basically borders on um, on uh, on bankruptcy. But there are many other pension funds across the country that are not in great shape. And I think mm-hmm. the other issue that's out there, and I think pervades every issue, is the question mm-hmm. of of justice and dignity on the job. The level of yeah. disrespect and harassment is quite high at UPS, which has led uh, over the last few years to two mass killings at UPS yeah. hubs in San Francisco and one outside of Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, I mean, it's it's with so many people doing so much more shopping online these days, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's a workforce that has to do that work. And in your article, I think you mentioned that, like, they want people to work 70-hour weeks. And that's just, you know, that's a lot of work, <laughs> especially we're going into the summer. I mean, you know, a long time ago, back in the 70s, you know, if that's a long time ago for people, for me, that's when I was a teenager, is that, you know, people remarked about UPS then as being a kind of combination of, you know, uh, the 20th century and the 19th century in terms of its working conditions. And and that kind of phrase, you know, I think really does kind of capture both the the kind of the, the heavy, brutal work. Mm-hmm. And exactly. the cult-like aggressive management 
that mm-hmm. nobody treats as workers, combined with obviously a new level of technology in terms of monitoring workers right. every single minute, particularly package car drivers, out mm-hmm. on their daily routes, that really has made made life just hell for particularly drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, uh, the other, and, and this is important because this is true in every aspect of the economy, and particularly true with all of the big uh, the big logistics companies. You right. know, one of the things, Sarah, that I think is kind of frustrating for a lot of long-term teamster activists, and, and I just think a lot of people in the labor movement or people who are, you know, want to be in the labor movement, is yeah. that you would hope that the teamsters who have represented, you know, a company like UPS for, for so long, for over 80 years, yeah. you would hope that by now, or at least in the thinking of the current contract, is that they would probably be trying as much as possible to create a kind of model contract that they could mm-hmm. then go and use, uh, use to organize workers at FedEx and at Amazon. And uh, that doesn't appear to be on their minds at all, but I think yeah. it's something that people like ourselves need to be constantly hammering. So take us back to 1997. Let's talk about that strike um, a bit. And, you know, there's there's probably a fair number of people who are listening to this show who remember it, but probably mm-hmm. a bunch who don't. So, you know, um, give us the, you know, what happened then and in the middle of the 90s, in the middle of the Clinton era when everything was supposedly magical and neoliberal and wonderful. <laughs> um, there was this big strike at UPS. Well, and, uh, you know, yeah, I think what the 1997 strike did is it kind of ripped the mask off of, you know, the new economy, as people were calling it uh, then, mm-hmm. and revealed that underneath the, you know, new economy was poverty wages and pretty brutal working conditions. Mm-hmm. The specifics of the strike in 97 is they actually have their roots going going back much further. Uh, and some of it is contradictory and, 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 and counterintuitive. But, you know, the, the most important event was that in 1989 after – uh, a long period of campaigning, specifically led by the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, uh, yeah. the Teamster members won uh, the right to elect the top officers in their union. I mean, beforehand, it was a largely a corrupt club with the uh, sanction of the mafia, uh, who was going to be leadership yeah. of the union. And, you know, this was a battle between the federal government, who wanted to keep it as a trusteeship and the rank and file, activists who wanted democracy as a solution. And in, uh, in, in 1991, Ron Kerry was elected president of the Teamsters. He had been a, uh, a unique figure, uh, in the Teamsters in that he was a package car driver for himself, much like his father. He wasn't a, a kind of perennial junior junior of the Teamster establishment. He was a clean officer, not, you know, had no taint of corruption, was considered personally extremely honest and had a record of being a militant and who could and when he did, you know, would call strikes regularly against uh, against UPS. When he won in a three-way race and he won almost a majority, it was uh, just shy of a majority, Yeah, it was something of a bombshell that went off in the American labor movement uh, and shook the establishment and also shook corporate America. Nobody really expected Kerry uh, to win except really kind of rank-and-file activists who were out there campaigning for him and knew what uh, knew what the members wanted. After his election, it was a very hard battle within the union between himself and the, what was uh, dubbed the old guard, the sort of old corrupt officials who wanted to keep things the way that they did. But Kerry persevered, uh, particularly at UPS, and carried out in 1996 the beginnings of what was called uh, a contract campaign to make headway on the issues that really had propelled his campaign forward. 
the low pay, the lack of full-time jobs, which was the biggest one uh, really at the top of the agenda in 97. Okay. Members voted overwhelmingly to strike the company. And then August, August 3rd, a few days after the contract deadline passed, Kerry called a national strike. And at that time, 185,000 Teamsters uh, responded. Uh, it was the biggest industrial strike in a generation. Um, two to one uh, in all the polls, uh, the public supported uh, the strikers. Even Jim mm -hmm. Kelly, who was the president of UPS at the time, mused at one point that, well, if there was a choice between a, a big industrial corporation and a rank and a, a package car driver, I guess I would pick the package car driver too. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's a very funny, a funny moment. Uh, even conservatives surprisingly rallied around, uh, uh, you know, some of the demands of the strikers. And UPS, of course, was enraged by this because one, they they were a very influential political force in Washington at the time. They played a big role in kind of uh, neutering the uh, the investigative powers of OSHA. They had a lot of friends in Congress. They had a lot of friends in the media. Uh, and all that kind of melted away when it realized that, one, the strike was popular and that it was supported by the public. Uh, this, uh, the, uh, the, the, the most famous slogan from the strike was, part-time America won't work. And after two and a half, nearly three weeks on strike, the teams has won a hands-down victory over UPS, and um, and uh, among other things, winning uh, 20,000, the creation of 20,000 full-time jobs eventually. Kerry himself, in a very complex uh, political case, was witch-hunted out of the union, but uh, the legacy of the strike was that a big company like UPS in a, in a country which was considered so anti-union, so pro-corporate, and a labor movement that was written off as nearly dead, showed itself to be uh, the complete opposite of that. And I still think uh, holds an inspiring uh, example in people's uh, minds. Yeah, and what we're seeing right now in, in the labor movement is that strikes can be contagious. Um, mm -hmm. The UPS mm -hmm. strike back in 1997 really kind of wasn't contagious in that way. It had a small ripple effect, but, you know, you can say that things are very different, I think, uh, you know, the West Virginia teacher strike, you know, kicked off not only, I can I would say, the most important strike wave in 40 years, and for all sorts of reasons. One, their, their unions were essentially almost semi-illegal. Uh, they struck against uh, laws that, you know, the state governments in, uh, across the country where strikes are illegal. They were incredibly popular. Uh, the, you know, the teachers themselves were incredibly heroic folks. The settlements to a lot of these strikes varied in a lot of places, but nonetheless, you have to say, this is kind of, a, you know, a year that began with us with having an almost funereal feel because of the impending Janus decision from uh, right. the Supreme Court has shown us that there's actually another way that the labor movement uh, can be built from the uh, bottom up in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And so looking at the UPS strike vote, you know, what effect do you think that like this context that this is coming in um, had on the decision to, to even call for a strike vote, let alone like, you know, win well, it overwhelmingly? Well, I think it's I think there's a couple of things going on. There's no yeah. doubt that the atmosphere is much more pro worker and pro and pro strike in, for the first time in many years. There's no doubt about that. I think the other factor that's going on here is that, you know, the pressure for a strike vote and a pressure for, well, calling a strike vote because Hoffa, who leads the union, didn't call one last time around, which was a signal right, yeah. to the company 
that they were going to press for a shitty deal, and they, they eventually imposed that on a, a very unhappy membership. But a lot of this is still the outcome, I think, uh, of the 2016 Teamster election, mm-hmm. where Fred Zuckerman, leading the Teamsters United slate, nearly toppled Hoffa, who believed he was invincible, and he came within a few thousand votes of toppling him from office. And so I think this is still the outcome of that election uh, that's kind of married to the new feel for uh, the new sort of pro-strike atmosphere in the country. Yeah, and so what would a strike look like at UPS in 2018? I mean, as we said, we talked about how much more people rely on, you know, online shopping and deliveries and everything. Like, how much would this screw up people's lives? Well, I think thinking, well, I mean, I guess it ain't going to impact, you know, people's video streaming. Uh, but sure, yeah. I mean, you have to say, <laughs> you have to say that it would have an even bigger impact on the economy. And right. it would raise even bigger questions about, uh, you know, whether the federal government would intervene which was Mm -hmm. an issue in 97, and, you know, Clinton and company calculated that that would be a political disaster for them. Uh, Not that they helped us, uh, you know, helped the Teamsters in any way, but they kind of knew that it would be a political disaster if they did that. That's not so clear with somebody like Trump, uh, what he would do. The other Mm -hmm. is, is that, you know, the big change from, you know, 97 or even just five years ago until now is that, the package delivery and logistics business is completely different. And the reason it's completely different is because of Amazon. Uh, You know, at one time, you know, you had the big three that dominated the package delivery business, you know, the post office, FedEx, and UPS, and some smaller regional companies. They're mostly the big three. And now Amazon is, you know, one of the largest non-union employers in the country. It has built in the last five years um, a warehousing and delivery service that, you know, it took UPS 90 years, you know, it took, took, took them 90 years to build a, a, a network like that. So on one hand, you know, the, the challenge of a strike uh, by, by the team system that would have a bigger impact in many ways. It would have political ramifications in many more ways. But it would also raise the question of the ability of the Teamsters to take on and really organize places like FedEx and Amazon because I think the Teamsters are at a sort of moment now where their future is pretty uncertain in this business. Mm-hmm. You know, the growth of the non-union wing of the industry has grown apace, and they have gotten smaller. And if you just look across, you know, you know, literally the, 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 the industrial complexes where most of these uh, 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 buildings are located, you, know, you can see that the Teamsters were once dominated the freight industry, and now they're fairly marginal. So yeah. that's the future if they can't, you know, win a good contract at UPS and then take that and organize the non-union industries. So what happens next? They have a deadline, which is still mm-hmm. a little bit away. What should we be looking out for over the next couple months? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Obviously, the, the, the official, you know, the contract, uh, the national contract at UPS, uh, there's a couple of local ones in Chicago, but they're, they all run concurrently. But the, the big contract, at UPS, uh, you know, expires on the night, midnight, July 31st. Uh, in the meantime, I think there's, you know, there's a couple of things that are very possible. Mm-hmm. One is that the team, there could be a contract proposed by, a settlement, uh, proposed by the, uh, by the Teamsters to the membership for a vote. They could recommend it. They could not recommend it. Uh, we'll see what they actually come up with and what they propose. 
some people who are far closer to negotiations than I, I am uh, do believe that sometime in the next two or three weeks that there'll be a deal sprung for a vote. Most people are expecting it not to be a very good deal. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm yeah. also, I'm also don't think it'd be a very good deal. Then it has to be voted on by the membership. Right. Uh, if the membership votes it down, then there's the possibility of a real strike. But I think it is something that people are going to have to fight for. What we've learned, uh, for, from the Hoffa years, and he's been in office now, you know, over two decades, is that unfortunately, they show themselves to be doing the bidding of the employers rather than the members. And they continually put obstacles in the members' way that they have to fight through to get, you know, a decent and just settlement in, in their contracts. So I think, you know, we will probably see some type of tentative agreement put up for a vote. And I think it's probably the case that there has to be a vote no, a vote no campaign organized around it. But I don't want to run too far ahead in the story, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. may see some surprises in the next couple yeah. of weeks, too. But that's kind of what uh, people who are much closer to negotiations are saying yeah. uh, about things right now. And that was Joe Allen, the author of The Package King, a rank-and-file history of United Parcel Service. While they may champion the credo of don't be evil, the digital behemoth that is Google is not above the occasional moral lapse. And recently they decided that one of their projects was actually, yes, indeed, evil. The venture known as Project Maven, an ominous-sounding name for sure, was secretly planned by Google Brass as a collaboration with the Department of Defense to build their surveillance and intelligence gathering capabilities using artificial intelligence. Uh, This is the AI dystopian nightmare that many tech activists have long feared and warned us about, so you can understand why Google would want to keep it under wraps. Uh, Unfortunately, someone blew the lid. Um, Reports of the plans leaked out, along with embarrassing records of some of the project's leaders trying to orchestrate a public relations campaign to limit the public backlash. That was a damage control fail, and about 4,000 employees rebelled, signed a massive petition along with other civil society actors and academics, expressing opposition and real concern about uh, any kind of partnership between the tech sector and uh, the Pentagon. So with a little push from the workers, the Google empire came to the realization that secretly colluding with the Pentagon to build the world's greatest war machine is not exactly a worthy investment for the Silicon Valley's leading light. The resignation of dozens of employees might have also sealed the deal for Google. And so all those brainy Google employees who refused to provide their labor for this sinister abuse of technological talent sent a clear message to both their bosses and to the public. They know better than corporate America, and they, as the producers of this technology, have a voice to check them from the inside when they try to secretly violate basic principles of ethics and transparency. Unfortunately, what they did here, while impressive, is not nearly enough to really limit Google's power in a meaningful way. Aside from Google's drubbing on the public stage for its war game schemes, the other lesson learned from this clash is that in the Silicon Valley workforce, few rules exist to guide the standards of transparency and corporate accountability that govern how AI is used, manipulated, perhaps abused to commit human rights abuses by both the tech sector and by state actors. 
Faced with this brave new world of a deregulated neoliberal future, especially under the guy in the White House, workers are demanding real independent oversight and more formal guidelines for ethics and corporate integrity that can stop evil in its tracks. For those who hold the keys to AI, though, this kind of political and labor intervention also requires a new way of thinking and organizing across big tech. For more on the power of Google and what our rights are as producers, users, and workers, I talked to Drew Mitnick of Access Now. It's a coalition of digital rights activists, and they just issued a major manifesto called the Toronto Declaration to provide guidelines on how to keep our online public sphere democratic in a new digital age. With the Google petition, it was interesting because it was a combination of civil society actors and employees. Can you talk about this in the context of labor rights when it comes to tech? It seems like the people who are increasingly being tasked with the production of these potentially harmful technologies are also sort of growing alienated from you know their control over how their right. products are used. So as the producers of this, what kind of power can we expect to have? That's a, that's a really great question. I mean, I'm, my expertise is not in labor, but I, I will say one point on that, which is one, and one of the things that we try to draw out from the Toronto Declaration is not only in like the app, actual functionality of AI machine learning systems, but in their implementation, we, we often don't know that much about it. There's, there's generally like a lack of transparency. And, and so, you know, like sometimes it, 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 we have to look to people within the companies that are developing these things to be, you know, open and honest about what's happening. Um, and, and I think, you know, so it's like from, from the outside perspective, from civil society, we're, we're dependent on, on kind of information that we can gain access to. So mm-hmm. that's what happened in this, in this case. Well, I mean, I, I know that maybe the Toronto Declaration doesn't touch on this, but I mean, going forward, do you see a bigger role for state regulation in terms of how um, these technologies are, are used, or do you see the state more as a threat? Um, as you know, we're we're sort of starting to view the whole Pentagon um, influence now because it seems like um, as civil society, we're sort of between a rock and a hard place because you know we fear um, too much intervention from government, um, but yeah. we also fear the hegemony of uh, corporate actors in manipulating yeah. information. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly there's certainly a role for for government regulation. Um, I uh, I, think what, I think what we argue in the Toronto Declaration, or I think you know what it, at least what it suggests is part of this comes from corporate policy and the way that things like um, uh, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, for example, apply to corporate policy. Uh, but but there's also like there's also a role for the government to when necessary prevent the harms that can come out of um, private use of machine learning. Um, so the the Toronto Declaration itself doesn't necessarily recommend any specific regulation, but it certainly envisions uh, a role for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would you say when it comes to things like law enforcement, where you see law enforcement actually cooperating yeah. with uh, you know companies to hack into people's systems or to undermine security or undermine encryption, um, you know, then you seem to have the worst of both worlds. Like, I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, who can we trust? Or is it time to sort of create some sort of new uh, grid of protection where that is sort of autonomous and self-policing? Yeah, I mean, a really good example of that is when when um, the FBI was attempting to, to compel Apple to uh, modify uh, 
iOS in order to access the um, uh, in order to access San, San Bernardino iPhone. Um, you know, they in re, in eventually reaching an agreement with an external company to um, access the, the the data on the device without actually having to compel Apple. They they explained that they weren't able to provide details based on the contract that they had with the company. And so I think I think you certainly see instances where that relationship between and it goes both ways, but that relationship between companies and the government is used to hide, um, you know, to hide what's actually taking place. And that's unfortunate because I think human rights, certainly human rights law requires transparency from both sides. Uh, and so it, within, the, within the application of AI and machine learning, uh, certainly there's an obligation on, on both companies and government to be, to be transparent. That was Drew Mitnick of Access Now. Friend of the show, Rebecca Burns, has an excellent story out in these times about a rank-and-file-led and workers wildcat strike in the Midwest, and so I called her up to talk about it. So, Rebecca, you have a story up about a another rank-and-file-led strike. So tell us about how this got started. Yeah, um, so this is a really interesting example of um, it was an unfair labor practice strike that AT&T mm-hmm. workers um, in five states in the Midwest went out on um, while their union was in bargaining. Um, but it wasn't a strike that the union leadership um, kind of had a role in coordinating and there was no official vote. It was just this really interesting example of an organic rank-and-file-led strike um, where mm-hmm. workers at one shop in my home state of Indiana, uh, walked out uh, first, and then it spread throughout the state, and then it spread throughout the district. So it was, people think about 8,000 people. Um, some of them went back earlier, but the folks in Indiana were out for almost a week. Yeah. And so tell us about the the negotiations that were going on and the thing that led the workers finally to go out. CWA District 4, which represents AT&T workers in kind of a couple different um, areas, call center workers, technicians, other types of personnel, have been bargaining since March. Um, So they're now, their contract has expired. And what AT&T did um, earlier this month was they kind of tried to bypass the elected bargaining team and just emailed, like, essentially every um, every employee in the district directly to say, here's the text of our final offer. You really should, you know, contact your bargaining team and your stewards and tell them to take a vote on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of an attempt um, to undercut the elected bargaining team. And um, the union alleges that it's an also um, it's an unfair labor practice, um, specifically mm-hmm. that it's bad faith bargaining and what's called direct dealing, that, you know, there's an elected bargaining team. The union, CWA, is the workers' sole collective bargaining representative, so you can't just go directly to workers and say, hey, do you want this or not? So this spread pretty quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about how that sort of happened, how it moved from state to state? Yeah, um, so, you know, it's it's really interesting. During the teacher strikes, we were hearing about kind of the importance of closed Facebook groups, you know, mm-hmm. of text chains, of these sort of semi-formal types of communication that, that, that union workers had set up. And that was, I think, absolutely the, the key here as well, that um, 
from from what I was told, it really was just one garage that first decided to walk out in Indiana. Um, yeah. But everyone in that local, a couple thousand people, um, you know, uh, union activists were on like a group text chain together. So um, mm-hmm. there was an early shift at 7 a.m. that some workers just decided they were kind of fed up. AT&T had sent a few emails at that point, allegedly. And so they just decided, I'm not showing up today. I'm walking out. So that was 7 a.m. It was an earlier shift that some technicians had. And then by, you know, 8 a.m., when most most shifts were starting, most workers in the local, most locations had decided that they weren't going out either. From there, uh, it was kind of described to me that this strike wave, like, spread east. Um, uh-huh. So, uh, you know, there were there were shops in Ohio working out and then walking out. And then someone in Michigan said, you know, I was getting calls about it in the morning. I wanted to confirm this was really happening because it was so incredible. You know, people were posting in a closed Facebook group. And then, like, by that afternoon, like, 1 p.m. also, most shops in Michigan were out as well. So, yeah, something spreading to five states really in a matter of hours. Pretty incredible stuff. So what is the significance of this being a, a rank-and-file-led walkout, and what was the reaction of the union, um, you know, the elected union leadership? Yeah, so I talked to um, both someone on the elected bargaining team um, and then a couple sort of um, local officials, you know, and obviously they're, you know, very quick quick to emphasize that this wasn't an official strike. In this case, they seemed pretty supportive. You know, a lot of people were saying they were proud of their members. Um, You know, it it had been a long time coming. People were just really fed up. I mean, I think what's interesting here is even if they hadn't been supportive, like, you know, if they hadn't been genuinely supportive, the workers at that point have kind of forced the issue. You know, it was this mm-hmm. sort of upsurge of, of frustration and anger um, that, you know, presumably is putting the, the bargaining team in a better better position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned, right, talking about the teacher strikes in West Virginia and elsewhere. Um, it sure does look like workers are starting to think about this. And you mentioned in your piece that they, you know, had said they were in part inspired by the teacher strike. Um, what do you think the significance of this is for, you know, the, the ongoing, uh, I guess we can say we have an ongoing strike wave? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was fascinating just for me as a reporter, you know, I kind of mentioned I'm from Indiana. Indiana went right to work in 2012. It's not really, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff going on there, a lot of great people in the unions, but it's not really what we would think of as like a hotbed of labor activism in in case it was sort of the, you know, the first uh, right to work state kind of in the manufacturing heartland and his, you know, the has been kind of at the at the forefront of attacks on unions um, in the Midwest. Um, to so to see, um, you know, workers in small towns in Indiana be the first out um, and staying mm-hmm. out for the longest, um, yeah, yeah. Is, is is pretty incredible. And specifically, again, saying you know, while well, we saw teachers who don't even have collective bargaining rights in some cases are going out. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think. One of the big questions here is what will other types of workers who who aren't teachers, you know, what lessons will they take from the teacher strike wave? And this is this is a pretty um, compelling answer that they are paying attention. Um, yeah. Folks also cited, you know, the 2016 Verizon strike as kind of mm-hmm. something that they had been in, paying attention to and taking inspiration from. 
Um, but definitely, you know, that was like an official strike. The idea that you have the power with your coworkers to, you know, to walk off the job to protest allegedly illegal actions by your employer. Um, I think that that's definitely something that's, um, uh, you know, uh, that the teacher strikes have kind of called the question. Yeah, yeah. And since we're we're talking about this while we're in in Janice limbo, it's always mm-hmm. you know interesting to see the way that these reactions are spreading. Obviously, these are private sector workers, but it's still it's an interesting time for you know the Supreme Court to be thinking about destroying uh, one of the pillars of labor peace. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, are all of the workers back on the job now? Yes, they are. So uh, they, again, because this wasn't official, they were Mm -hmm. going back in some cases at different times. You know, one local told me it's not like they were taking an official vote, but in the morning in the picket lines, people would kind of discuss and say, okay, are we going back today? So I think from what I understand, Indiana across the state stayed out the longest, and it stayed out um, almost a week. Other shops were back to work on, I believe, the the sixth day. And so what is next for these workers? What is uh, going on with their negotiations now? Yeah, so negotiations are ongoing. And yeah, I mean, presumably, um, you know, they've taken a strike authorization vote um, to actually strike, you know, over contract negotiations formally. Mm -hmm. So certainly, you know, they've already struck. So I imagine that they're in a much stronger (laughs) position um, to do that again formally over over the contract negotiations, if need be. That was journalist and my former uh, union sister, Rebecca Burns, and you can read her piece at In These Times. We will put a link, of course, to this and everything else we talk about on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Seems like everyone's struggling so hard just to make a living these days that we don't pay as much attention to where we're putting our actual paychecks. But maybe we should, since we tend to reinvest our money in the form of savings and debt with massive financial institutions that are also known for driving our economy towards crisis every few years. And it seems like the bubble is once again inflating. So in light of the massive deregulatory frenzy that the Trump administration has engaged in, perhaps now is a good time to think about this question. Why shouldn't we control our funds with a public not-for-profit financial trust in the form of a public bank? The Public Bank NYC campaign calls for a new city-chartered bank that is owned, governed, and accountable to the public. The public bank would fill a crucial gap in the financial landscape with an engine that is not too big to fail, but just small enough to succeed in fostering community development. Focusing investments on city-based ventures, the mission would be to redistribute wealth in communities by helping capitalize small businesses, community credit unions, cooperative startups, and other more ethical ventures. To the extent that we all have to deal with capitalism in our everyday lives, we might as well make our investments a little more meaningful to our local communities and take a little bit off of the edge of the profits of Wall Street. The coalition behind the public bank campaign includes cooperative advocacy organization Working World, the local economic justice group New Economy Project, and several community credit unions and environmental labor and civil rights organizations. 
Though the bank wouldn't be doing retail banking for consumers, and it has yet to be worked out how exactly this would work uh, with respect to how the bank is governed, we know that it would handle investments of city revenues, and it would provide capital to community-based lending institutions like credit unions that really do deliver material wealth and asset building to neighborhoods on the ground. Although a public bank for New York would be unprecedented among U.S. municipalities, New Mexico, San Francisco, and other areas have explored the concept in recent years. And the Bank of North Dakota has operated and managed public funds for about a century. There are also other public banks that are pretty mainstream in places like Canada, China, India, and Germany. At a recent rally for the public bank campaign, Basma Eid of Enlace talked about how this might help marginalized communities take control of the financial system. How do you see the assets of the bank actually being distributed? Do you see any role for any kind of like private sector link, like whether it's like green energy or any kind of like community-driven development? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is to be determined. Um, you know, Unless has been working on the prison investment campaign since 2010, and we've seen a lot of big victories. And a lot of the pushback we get is after we see a big win in divestment, people are, you know, whether it's a municipality, whether it's a university or pension fund, they kind of tell us, all right, well, we're divesting from Wells Fargo, we're going to divest from Chase, but we need a return on our investments. Where can, we, where can that money come from? And we think that, like, a public bank, particularly here in New York City, that actually has input from community and that community gets to determine whether that's going towards affordable housing, whether it's going towards green energies, um, that is kind of to be seen and to be determined. Um, obviously, we want resources to always be controlled by the public. Um, so, I, you know, we're not going to advocate that. That money should be returned from private hands into more private hands. So would it operate sort of like a cooperative in the sense that New Yorkers get to vote on like where they want the investments to be directed or something like that? Possibly. I mean, one thing that we've been looking at, um, you know, in, in current situations, for example, um, looking at things like investment screens as well, which exist, right? So then I think investors or whoever is putting money into whether it's a bank or a pension fund can determine, all right, well, I want my money to go towards this or go towards that. So having some sort of like social responsible investment screen um, could be one kind of step. I know that you've done work around like immigrant communities in particular, and one of the huge financial barriers um, is obviously just uh, immigration and fears around immigration. So how would a public bank maybe help engage communities more in underbanked communities that are also really hit by fears about interacting with any kind of public or private institution? Right, yeah. I mean, I think one thing first to bring up is just to note that the private prison companies like First Civic and Geo, most of their money is going towards private immigrant detention centers, right? So I think first getting divestment from those corporations and then reinvestment into the community um, has to come first. And when it comes to kind of this, like dispelling fears, um, I think, yes, a lot of communities, for a good reason, um, are distrustful of, of institutions. I think a lot of it has to come from communities. So I think this coalition is working with groups, groups um, that are on the ground, that are in community, that can kind of like do the education, get folks on board, and kind of kind of dispel some of those myths that, that exist and, and really recreate this, this vision for economic justice in New York. Yeah. Um, would ordinary consumers be able to, like, you know, take out loans, or is this more of like a doing business specifically yeah, so, with nonprofits? So the public bank. Um, so the, pub, the idea with this public bank particularly is that this is not necessarily for me and you. This is for the city, right? So consumers aren't able to pay into this, right? And I think part of the coalition is working with credit unions and with other more social responsible financial institutions um, who are also at a smaller scale trying to do what we're, we want to do with the city. Would your hope be one day to actually really take away market share from Wall Street and in terms of just economies of scale? Like, are you guys there just to sort of prove a point that, yes, you can do this? 
I mean, I don't think it's really within the realm of imagination to think we might compete with like JP Morgan, but what would a vision for that for a yeah. city like New York City be? I mean, I think when you think about the $90 billion budget that the city has, the, the impact goes beyond New York City, right? The, the money that's going into these Wall Street banks have a, you know, a global impact on communities of color across the, the globe. Um, I think we have an opportunity to kind of set a precedent. There are public banks in other parts of the country, but they're not coming at it from the lens of social justice that we are. And if you look at Europe, there's also like a plethora of uh, public banks, you know, in Germany and other parts of, of, of Europe as well that have been doing this type of um, thing for, for ages. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think this is, we could really set the, you know, set, um, kind of set the standard of what community control over resources could look like. And Linda Diaz also spoke at the rally. Her company is Brooklyn Stone and Tile. She is the co-owner of it together with a bunch of other co-op members. Um, they started the business together with the help of Working World, and she wants to help more community members get started like her. Oh well, yeah, super excited. I feel the power on what we are able to accomplish. This story is not just mine. It is that of many. And that is why a public bank New York City is so important. A public bank is created to work for the public's interest. And a great public bank in New York City could provide fair and accessible financing the way the working world does for workers, just like us at Brooklyn Stone and Tile. In the words of Brendan Martin, our co-founder of the working world, the working world is supporting the campaign for public banks in New York City because private banks have been operating at the expense of working people and communities for far too long. After more than a decade offering finance, finance to build community businesses, the working world knows the needs and impact of financing that works for people. By making financing accessible to workers, to worker cooperatives, and other community wealth building institutions, a New York City public bank saves jobs. Build wealth in our own struggling communities and help to build a more just economy that works for all. Those are voices from the Rally for a Public Bank in New York City. To learn more, go to publicbanknyc.org. You're listening to The Labored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. This week I wanted to point to a piece at the New York Times that presented the view of what an immigration raid does to a small town, and how that town responded with support and with organizing. By Miriam Jordan, the piece is called Ice Came for a Tennessee Town's Immigrants, The Town Fought Back. In April, ICE raided a meatpacking plant in Morristown, Tennessee, in what was at the time one of the biggest raids since Trump took office promising these kinds of crackdowns on immigrants. Jordan writes, quote, Dozens of panicked workers fled in every direction, some wedging themselves between beef carcasses or crouching under bloody butcher tables. About 100 workers, including at least one American citizen, were rounded up. Every Latino employee at the plant, it turned out, save a man who had hidden in a freezer. End quote. The piece is presented partly through narrative, partly through blocked quotations from interviews, which give it an immediacy as you read it. The block quotes provide a rawness, whether that is a longtime resident wondering how to help the victims of the raids, or a comment from a retiree who supports the raid saying, send them back. 
And then the labor angle trickles in. In one of those block quotes, Elizabeth, 38, whose husband was detained in the raid, says, quote, He worked there for nine years. When he started, there were only around 10 people. The plant expanded thanks to the Hispanics. It was hard work. He would come home tired and say, We killed 300 cows today. In the early years, they'd only kill 15 cows a day. A few months ago, the workers were talking about striking for better pay and work conditions. End quote. Federal authorities, it turned out, were investigating conditions at the plant, which were, well, miserable, but the workers noted that they took the jobs because people could get those jobs without papers. The company was notoriously lax about uh, requiring such things. In another block quote, Stephanie Teatro, co-executive director of the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, said, quote, So far, it has been the workers who have borne all the consequences of the employer's violations. ICE could have decided to audit this employer and force him to pay fines and correct his practices. Instead, they conducted a raid that left over 160 children without a parent from one day to the next. End quote. The Obama administration had moved away from this kind of raid and towards that kind of fining the employers. But with Trump, shock and awe is back, and the community was not having it. Families gathered to support the families of those taken, children worried for their friends, local activists organized a speak out. St. Patrick Catholic Church became a crisis response center flooded with volunteers. A prayer vigil drew a thousand people. A week after the raid, 300 people took the streets. But the workers were still shuttled to detention in Louisiana, and others served for, with notices for deportation hearings. Nothing so far has been done to the company. It's a sad and hopeful story, as well as one that sheds light on the Trump administration's immigration strategy, which is, it seems to be, punish working people, break up families, and let the wealthy employers who recruit and abuse those working people off the hook. When most people hear the term sex work, they probably think more about the sex than the work. But if you think you have nothing in common with sex workers, think again. After all, everybody's hustling these days and your fight for fair pay is as linked to your job as it is to the travails of the woman selling sex behind closed doors upstairs. My pick for ARG this week is called Increasingly Vulnerable Sex Workers Are Demanding Their Rights by Emily Witt in The New Yorker. It's a look at the aftermath of the closure of the online classified service Backpage, which was scandalized for facilitating transactions with sex workers and was forced to shut down after years of legal attacks over alleged sex trafficking. Witt parses the moralizing rhetoric surrounding the website, and on the flip side of Backpage, she looks closely and doesn't find legions of enslaved women trapped in medieval sex dungeons. Contrary to stereotypes, she actually finds some very real stories of some people fighting for justice at work, struggling to earn a decent and dignified living. After the feds cracked down on Backpage for the final time in early April, the Trump administration and the GOP rushed to enact a major new set of laws that limit online platforms that allow the promotion of sex work under the rubric of stopping trafficking. While that may be a noble cause, as we've reported before, the crushing of sex workers' online communications platforms not only can have a devastating impact on their ability to get decent-paying work, but it also endangers their safety. Homicides of sex workers are routine across the U.S. and around the world, and limiting their access to communications, especially online in a digital age, does not make them any safer. It might make them even more vulnerable, in fact, by forcing them to ply their trade on the street. The more you limit their workers' rights to solicit online, they end up being driven into riskier encounters with clients, often random strangers, and the more precarious the work becomes, the more desperate they are. 
without platforms like Backpage or before that things like Rent Boy, um, workers are simply less protected and that has this profound effect on their labor rights. Witt also looks to the sex work landscape of New York City and shows how the structure of anti-prostitution laws, many of which date back to anti-vice laws going back over a century, end up exposing workers to the police, leading to arrest, incarceration, criminal charges, even brutality. She writes, quote, In New York, working on the street also increases the likelihood that a sex worker will be charged with what is known as a loitering with the intent of prostitution charge, a statute that is currently at the center of a class action lawsuit filed against the city of New York and the police department in September 2016. The lawsuit filed by legal aid with the pro bono assistance of the law firm Clarion Gottlieb claims the law unfairly targets women for arrest based on race, gender, ethnicity, gender identity, and or appearance, including the phenomenon that advocates call walking while trans. Witt delves into the draconian courtrooms where sex workers are arraigned and shows how humiliating the process can be, especially when dealing with economic precarity and pervasive stigma at every turn. After a recent court hearing, Stephanie Grissom, who's currently suing the city, said, it doesn't matter why I'm outside. This is New York City. I can walk anywhere I want to walk, wearing whatever I want to wear at any given time doesn't need to be questioned as to why I need to have to prove myself as to why I'm outside or defend myself for being outside. From there, Witt takes us on a journey with sex workers to reclaim their streets through social protest, making themselves seen and heard in public, and blasting through the stigma and reaffirming their rights as workers and as human beings. Some groups, like the Black Sex Workers Collective, represent communities in the crosshairs of structural racism, gender discrimination, and economic injustice. On all these fronts, sex workers' rights are indeed workers' rights, and they matter as much as any of ours do, when we all want a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. At one of the many colorful rallies, Yin Chu, a, quote, queer first-generation Chinese-American sex worker whose business card described her as a BDSM and kink educator slash writer slash shamanatrix, who, to the roar of the crowd condemned progressives for excluding sex workers' rights, she says, feminists, stop shaming me. Liberals, stop saving me. Gay pride, stop ignoring me. I am a taxpayer, a voter. I'm on the fucking PTA. So say hello to your neighbors, your fellow workers. Stop hand-wringing and join hand-in-hand with workers who share a common enemy in the White House. You may not share the streets with them, but every day of the year, you're struggling side-by-side in the same community. That's all for this episode of Belabored. Join us next time, and remember to get in touch. If you are rallying against the Trump administration, if you are planning on striking, if you are waiting with bated breath for the Janus decision to come down soon, more on that later, talk to us. We're at hashtag belabored on Twitter, or you can email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>